Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts. This is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello, and welcome to Dark Unicorn in Conversation. My guest today is Deb Olin Unfer, an author of No Mean Talent and Achievement, with work spanning short stories, novels, and memoir. Her work has been featured everywhere, from the New York Times and Harper's to Esquire and heavyweight literary journal Granta. She is a multiple winner of the Pushcart Prize, a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, and a finalist for a National Book Critics Cycle Award for her 2012 memoir, Revolution. In addition, she is the recipient of the Governor of Texas's Criminal Justice Service Award for her pioneering work as the founder and director of the Penn City Writers, a two-year college-level creative writing certificate program for inmates at a maximum security prison in southern Texas. Her latest novel, Barn 8, which is about a madcap plot to liberate close to a million chickens from an industrial-scale egg farm, has been described as enthralling by The Guardian and beautiful, urgent and politically charged by The New York Times, as well as countless superlatives by Dark Unicorn's executive director, Eleanor Sturton, herself, as some of you will know, the proud custodian of a small coop of hens rescued from similar work. We were delighted that Deb took the time to talk to us from her home in Austin, and we started off by discussing her love of rural America. Deb, it, it occurs to me that with, with several of your works, uh, I'm thinking not only of, of Barn 8, of which much more later, um, but also Vacation and your, your memoir, Revolution, there's a slight motif of, of fleeing a sense of home in the hope of discovering a sense of truth, almost, uh, often in sort of um, the wider open spaces. Um, you know, obviously, this isn't a, it's a new, it's not a new thing, but does it, does it speak to a a love of yours for those sort of quirks and vagaries of rural existence, and especially rural America in the case of Barnaid? You know, um, I'm from Chicago, which is obviously a big city, but it's situated right in an area that is all very rural. And now I live in Texas, but I'm in Austin, which is a city, but I'm surrounded by vast rural areas, and I've lived in 
Alabama. I mean, I've lived in all of these places where I'm surrounded by big rural areas. And I think that the expanse has been very inspiring to me. Um, and I mean, you know, there's a long history, of course, a long literary and film history of, you know, hitting the open road. And I, that isn't really the kind of thing that I write, but I do write about being in that space a lot, especially in Barney, but also being crowded in that space. So in Barney, for example, there's, um, you know, I write a lot about these chickens, about farms and how there are so many bees pressed into these very small spaces, these, these you know, giant warehouses that hold, you know, 150,000 chickens. Um, but I also think a lot about how the cities as well are so concentrated. And then in the United States, we just have vast open spaces where very few people live. And um, that's gotten, you know, that's becoming very complicated politically here. There's also, uh, isn't there, that, that, that sense of um, the strange dichotomy you get of the, the ability to feel incredibly lonely in a, in a huge expanse, heavily populated expanse, and yet find tremendous community in much more sparsely populated areas. Um, I've read interviews with you where you talk about the, the political discourse in your home growing up, but, but were the arts a feature of your upbringing as well? Um, I mean, I would say that I got interested in the arts probably in college and after college. Um, when I was growing up, that wasn't the primary, that wasn't, although my, my grandparents were interested in the arts, but my parents really um, weren't, they, my dad was interested in politics um, and history. And um, they were very interested in us knowing Spanish and being in, engaged politically in different ways. Um, so I think that that was my primary focus when I was, when I was growing up. But then as I got older, and I went to college and I, I studied philosophy as an undergraduate. And then, um, and then my aunt is an art historian and I started spending a lot of time with her and you know, she began teaching me a little bit about art and then, and then I started reading a lot. And so that's kind of really, it was my twenties that I became, that I fell in love with literature and art. And I mean, that along with, with Politics is, is explored quite a lot with your, your memoir, Revolution. Um, you discuss the many and varied life lessons you learned during a, uh, uh, for anybody who hasn't read it, during a, a sort of earnest late teenage period where you and your boyfriend ran off to Nicaragua to attempt to help the Sandinistas. Um, you wrote this following quite a, a gap between the events and writing, obviously, but did you, did you find when you were writing it that that period is still teaching you lessons which you're still learning? Yeah, definitely. Do you mean the period that I was in Central America? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so when I was a kid, my grandmother had a house in Mexico um, that she lived in, and we would go and stay with her. And so I wound up learning Spanish. We would go to school. I went to school in Mexico on and off for many years. And so I learned Spanish. And so when when and actually i went to el salvador and nicaragua when i was a little girl with my parents so then when when i got older and went dropped out of college to try to get involved in 
the revolutions of Central America, I kind of, the, it already felt familiar to me, the, the location, the place. And so it was already so much a part of who I was and um, my upbringing that it, it, so then when I, later when I, when I came back and was studying philosophy and then later art, that part of the world was still very much a part of my entire life. Like it never went away. And um, so then when I started going back later, um, wanting to write about it, um, it just felt like I was coming home in some way. It didn't feel, it, it felt like I had left home kind of, and now I'm coming back. So I, so for a long time, I, I felt like my life sort of straddled the two worlds a little bit. Um, I feel less that way now because now I've been here in the United States for so long. Um, but yeah, but the politics never really went away. The politics have always continued to be a big part of my life. And in, in terms of social service, like I, um, you know, I run this prison program um, here in Texas and that came directly out of my childhood and then my young adulthood. I don't, it's just always been a big part of my life. Because also, I mean, it was you. You came from what was um, certainly from what I, I've read of your upbringing. Uh, what was on on one level a, a politically a, a bipartisan household, if you like. You were both, you know, as a politically divided household. Your father identified as a Republican. You and your mother were more democratically inclined. Your brother identified as a libertarian. Am I, am I right in saying all this? Have I? Whoa, whoa, you have done your research. <laughs> wow, wow. I don't think my husband could say all of that. <laughs> um, um, well, I, my, my father was a Republican when I was growing up, but he actually, when he moved to, we, they moved to Arizona mm. and they passed these crazy anti-immigration laws. Mm. And it just really pissed my dad off. And um, he was like, this is, this country is built on immigration. And since my dad had spent so much time in Mexico and Central America, he took it really personally and he started protesting. It was so crazy what happened because he was just watching on TV, all these protesters. I was there in Arizona visiting and he was watching them at the Capitol. And he was like, I just feel like going down there and, and protesting with them. And he's, he was like 70 at that point and a Republican. Mm -hmm. And I was like, dad, let's go. So we went down there and it was, it was all very young people. It was, they were all um, Latinx. They were, there were no, there weren't any white people at this point. And um, my dad, my 70 year old, white dad showed up and they thought that he was a counter protester so they were like yelling at him and i was like hey no no he wants to be with you and it was the weirdest thing so he just they just invited him over and he walked over there and they gave him a sign and he was like standing there with it and it was like his whole life changed it was this radical thing like he started protesting every single day and then he started going to meetings and then he started knocking on doors and then he started this like um, like uh, this this group to like help people become citizens, and he started this like boycott thing. And he was working like he had retired, but now he was working like eighty hours a week on this. I mean, it was insane. 
And um, so, and then he, and at one point he was standing there and he was like, he was in one of the meetings and they were talking about, I don't know, Republicans or something. And they said, well, you're a Democrat, right? And he just didn't say anything. And they looked at him and they said, well, you're an independent, right? And he just stood there and he was like, actually, I'm a registered Republican. <laughs> but now he's not. Now he's a, he's a Democrat. But so he had this big transition. It's, it's, it's never too late to have that moment, is it? <laughs> um, the, uh, obviously, that sort of level of, of um, social conscience and, and liberation, really, sense of, um, is explored in a, in a sense in, in, in Barnett, uh, um, your most recent novel, for which congratulations, wonderful piece of work. And, and also, I have to say, it's success even more potent for it being, I mean, effectively released during the current pandemic. Is, is that right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So right at the start. Um, what drew you to poultry as a means of telling that story? <laughs> so, I know, isn't it funny? Um, so, I have been a vegan for like maybe. 13 or 14 years, I don't know, 15, something like that. I've been a vegan for a long time. Um, and when I became a vegan, the thing that was hard to give up, it was hardest. It was actually very hard for me to become a vegan. Vegans always talk about how oh, it's so easy. Actually, now it's easy after all these years. But um, the hardest thing for me originally to give up was eggs. And But I kept reading about how... Um, actually layer hens are the worst treated animal and so I always kind of it was so important to me to do that and so I so I think I, I I put an extra time just thinking about layer hens and thinking about eggs and thinking about researching it just to make sure that you know I really did have to give them up and so I kind of just knew a little bit more about them from the very start and then when I started thinking about the book, I, I immediately it was going to be chickens. But then I realized that it was actually a really great, they were a great foil in my book because they were great protagonists. They were great everything, you know, because people don't respect them very much. They're not, and, and they have this, a very deep history of their downfall, like from they started out as as being very celebrated animals at the beginning of history and now they're not and what happened is interesting and could be integrated into the book also people laugh about chickens like they're funny and so the challenge of letting people laugh at them but as the book goes on having people have more and more sympathy for them until finally they're like horrified that they're laughing at them but they're still laughing but they're also feeling affection, you know, like I just, it was, that was a really fun thing to play with, um, you know, as care, as characters in my book. Um, also just like chickens, like there's so many of them. So it was like such a challenge to think about how do you write about this huge community? You know, like it was just, there were so many interesting things when it came to writing about them. So they are, yeah, but they're, they're, I can see how they would be 
a great choice as a as a as a foil for the book. I mean, it's um, uh, Eleanor, who everyone who watches these videos will see at the start of the the. Um, she does a, a little piece at the start of each video. Uh, has kept chickens now for a number of years. That she she uh, rescues ex commercial lair hens um, and gives them a sort of half decent retirement. And they have. Uh, they're tremendously sort of sassy animals, actually. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they have great personality, and it, it did make um, it did make for a um, a very rich community of characters, effectively, in in uh, in the book. Um, I mean, obviously, one of the themes which I mean is, is, has been a a, a um, spur for you, and um, and which one can't help but consider along with it is the impact of factory farming not only on animal welfare, but also on, on climate change. And um, we've seen artists and celebrities discuss this too. I'm thinking particularly of the, the sort of fairly recent We're All Animals campaign with Bucky and Phoenix being photographed with a hen. Do you think, do you think literature and the wider arts community can be an equally effective voice to that of the world of science when it comes to affecting changes in attitude towards our environment? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like they're all integrated. It's all about us sharing this planet and how, how that's gonna work. Um, I feel like the model for so long has just been, we dominate and destroy anything we want. You know, we, we own everything. We own even the water and the sky and we own certainly every animal. And I mean, this, and, that model is not working. It's not working for scientific reasons. It's not working for moral reasons. It's not good for us psychologically. Like it's just not working for so many reasons. And so I feel like, uh, like animal liberation and, and science and, you know, taking care of our environment are all intertwined. So. And the, um, and you think that you know it's it's our artistic expressions need to reflect that as well. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I think that artistically we need to reflect what's happening now in whatever sort of sci-fi way we want to, you know, or non-sci-fi way we want to, um, and also like point to what this could lead to, will lead to, you know, what are different ways to think what are different ways to view the world i mean that's always kind of been the role of art so it's it's exciting to see different people trying different ways to express that in terms of the the, the technical approach to the book there are some interesting sort of linguistic approaches in it you know the, the father is never named the the Farmer's baby described as or referred to as chickadee and a slightly slightly unnerving echo to the animals he's exploiting, and this very visceral phrase of carpet pulling to describe the removal of, of dead hens from the cages. What what motivates your choices when you're deciding your own phraseology for each work? Well, I mean, I was I was raised to think carefully about words as a philosophy major. So um, most of my work is really interested in like everything that there can be about words. 
Um, like all of the titles of my books are thinking carefully about the varied meanings of individual words like barn, you know, like all the different ways that you can think about barn. And I think I explore that in the book, right? Where I think about um, a barn as this habitat, you know, but also as a prison and also as something that we're all in, in some way here on planet earth or um, as a country, like barn is boundary, you know, um, but it's also protection. Um, and, and vacation, my book vacation, just thought about, you know, what, what is, what is a vacation? Like what, what does vacation mean? It means to vacate, you know, like to leave where you are, but then it doesn't really talk about the destination. The word vacation doesn't really contain destination within it or revolution. Like, you know, there's inner revolution and outer revolution, all different. So in all different ways, I'm always trying to think in like a cubist way about individual words. And, um, and that definitely comes from my philosophical background. Um, and then I also like the sound of words, you know, and how they sound next to each other. Um, I was very influenced by um, people who studied with Gordon Lish, who um, was an editor um, in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, early 90s, um, who was really interested in the percussive use of sound on the page. And so um, it just kind of, I don't really think about it that much anymore, but you can see the traces of it all over my work that I was very interested in that for a long time. And so, so that's in there. And then, yeah, I like throwing all kinds of curveballs into, I think I teach a lot about having words that change the whole meaning of the sentence in there, or what I call shining words that disrupt whatever's happening on the page. And it can just be one word in a sentence. Um, so yeah, so I focus on that a lot in my teaching and in my writing and just in the way that I think. I had a, when I was reading it, I almost read it, it has a very, it has quite a sort of um, gritty cinematic quality to it. It's, um, it was a book that I read almost as though my, my experience of reading it, although I was sitting looking at words on a page, it was as though I was hearing it, a very sort of audio, it was a multi-sensory experience really. And, and you know, you're, your work in, in terms of dialogue is, is, is excellent. Uh, have you considered ever, um, have you ever considered writing for the stage or writing for performance in terms of um, where, where sort of live performance, where, where the um, impact of those words can, can be even more visceral? You know, um, that's nice of you to say. I would kind of like to try it sometime. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I haven't. Um, but I think it would be fun. I think it would be fun. Like, I think it would be, I would need, I would need someone to kind of give me a few pointers to get myself started. Um, but I do think it would be fun. This book is being optioned by the UK. Um, it's being optioned in UK or, um, by Fox Searchlight, by Searchlight. Searchlight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, but I'm not writing anything. 
Uh, I was going, that was I was going to ask. I knew that Alna had said to me that that it had been um, uh, she'd heard it had been optioned, but uh, I was going to ask whether you were planning to to write the screenplay if it comes. Yeah, to... I'm not writing it. They they didn't ask me to write it, which is fine because that would be that would be a very that would be hard to you know start with that. But um, no, I would I would I I I don't know why I haven't. I think I've been afraid. I think I've just been doing all the things that I sort of plan to do and. I haven't, uh, but maybe, maybe soon, maybe next. Yes, who knows? Well, I, I look forward to finding out more as, as time goes on. Um, the, the book itself was, um, it was quite a period in, in the making. Um, what, if anything, made your journey as an author different with regard to Barnett than perhaps some of your other longer form works? It did take a lot longer to write this one. Um, but I will also say that um, I kept quitting and just like I wrote, I published two other books while I was writing this one and just, I just kept giving up because it just seemed too hard. Um, I didn't really know very much about the egg industry or about chickens. So I had to do literally years of research um, and which was exciting. And I ended up publishing several pieces that were just about that research. Um, and so, but then that would get me distracted, you know, because then I would be doing so much research and I'd be writing these other pieces and, you know, so all of these things just kept stopping me. Um, but also I think that the book ended up much better because of the fact that it took me so long because there would be stubborn spots that I would just give up. And then I would come back a year later and be like, well, okay, you know, let's just have a look at this stupid book one more time. And then I would find new solutions. And also I just, the world changed. Like I, cha I, I spent eight years writing it. So it was like, I changed as a person as I was writing it. And my, because I wrote other books in between, like I learned about writing while I was doing it. Like just a lot of things. I think the book really benefited from me taking so long with it, but I'm glad it's done. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are, as well as as, as being a, a novelist and memoirist and short story writer, you're also a prolific educator, uh, not just um, as an associate professor of literature at the University of Texas, but also as a, a much lauded pioneer of literary education in prisons, which you've already mentioned, which we will come back to shortly. Um, certainly here in the UK, we've seen a huge deviation in public policy away from arts education to the benefit of, of STEM subjects, um, which uh, is, for whatever rationale there may be for it, is also hugely frustrating for those of us that, that, uh, whose education is largely arts-based and who work in that sector. Do you have any fears for the future of the arts as an educational tool? I mean, I do worry a little bit because this, there's a similar thing happening here, but at the same time, I believe deeply in the power of liberal arts education and, you know, and the arts um, as a way to learn to think, to build empathy, to um, help you understand the world. I mean, I feel like it's, like, I just, I can't imagine my life or the lives of anyone I know without the art that they paid attention to and thought about and studied 
and interacted with and created. I mean, it's just, I, so, so I, I'm a little bit afraid, but I also feel like it's just so essential. Like I just can't even, I don't even want to imagine the dark world that this would be um, without just art everywhere and so much a part of everything that we do. I, I agree. Uh, you you have you also live you live in Texas, which is a state that has been badly hit during the current pandemic. Um, how has that affected your teaching work? And do you think that the college experience, particularly, can recover from the changes that have had to be made? And I hope so. I mean, so yeah, we are basically still locked down. Are mm. you guys still basically locked down? Uh, we should be, but we have a government that has been prioritizing the recovery of business rather than necessarily the recovery of people. So we're, we're, um, but they've just introduced some new, uh, at the time of recording, they've just introduced this new rule of six, whereby no one group of more than six people can meet at any given time, except for a number of exemptions, including. Basically, you can't meet, more than six of you can't meet unless you are spending money. In which case, it's fine. <laughs> Whoa, that's crazy. That's crazy. It was also the, the big story today was that the government had asked the cabinet office, which which oversees the the um, uh, it's the over basically keeps track on all the different departments, um, and uh, they had been asked to prepare an exemption. Um, a special exemption uh, so that people could go grouse shooting <laughs> in groups of more than six, which just seems a little bit, it, it unfortunately doesn't make the slightly aristocratic feel of the government here at the moment, uh, it doesn't make them seem any more um, relatable. Um, so, uh, but, so it's slightly heartening for me that although it's, I'm, I'm not glad that you're all still locked down, it's heartening that at least where you are has taken a fairly sensible approach to things. Oh, I didn't mean to give you that impression. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no one's being sensible. I mean, maybe individuals are like, we're basically locked down. The university is almost all online. There's some classes being held in person. Um, the, but I think it's mostly individuals are making good choices. I think here in Texas, we're, you know, mostly open in the sense that you're allowed to be open, but people aren't doing that. Like there's not a lot of people out and we are certainly, the university community is pretty locked down mm -hmm. because I don't know, because we're Democrats. I don't know. It's sad that that's, that that's what we've come to. Um, but um, no, I think, I think it's been, I think it's been a really, really dark period in history all over the world. And Texas is definitely among that. I mean, now it, it, it's truly like being in the apocalypse with the, the, with the fires on the West Coast and the orange sky and, you know, the, the incredible um, um, flooding that we're having here in Texas and the pandemic and then our crazy government. I mean, it's just like, it's like living the in the apocalypse, and maybe we are. Well, perhaps. Um, but if it should turn out that we we aren't, what sort of um, future would you want to see emerge from 
the world we're in currently. I mean, I think we can probably guess what your what sort of future we'd like to see in the US after November. But generally, um, what, what sort of future would you like to see emerge from this now that we've all had to look this period in the face? Well, would it be too much to ask for no more shooting parties? Um, you know, like that's one thing. As soon as you said it, that's the exemption. I'm like, great, that's the exemption. Um, I think, what kind of future would I like to see? I mean, it seems like it seems like any future that I would ask for is completely untenable. I don't think that we're gonna, I don't think that we're gonna become better people. I don't think that we're gonna turn around and do the right thing. I don't think that we're gonna, we might try to figure out some ways to stay alive on this planet. Um, you know, whether it be um, ways to reduce carbon emissions, you know, there might be things like that that are happening that will keep some people alive on the planet, but I don't think that we're going to enter an age where everyone stops eating meat and, you know, everyone is, you know, helps, is like just more kinder, loving people who welcome immigrants and who you know, try to create an equal society for all. I think that that is just a, that's, that has, we have never lived that way as humans. We will never live that way. It's just a matter of time, um, unfortunately. Um, but looking at the, the short term in terms of how um, people's lives can be affected by the work that you do, you, as we've, we've already mentioned, you work with maximum security prisoners teaching creative writing through your Penn City Writers Program, uh, which has been very rightly applauded. And you've, I believe, received an award from the governor for, for, for that. Um, in, in fact, um, uh, my colleague Eleanor has, has alluded to similarities that she's seen between your program and the world that Margaret Atwood has created in her book, Hagseed, which your thoughts are welcome on that if you've read it. I don't know if you have. But do you feel that the creative arts have the power to redeem and rehabilitate? Um, and do the inmates that you work with find comfort in the creative process? Oh, absolutely. First of all, I haven't read that book, but thanks for that recommendation because I love Margaret Atwood. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at that book. Um, so yeah, um, I do think that, that art has the ability to change lives and rehabilitate and transform how we see the world and helps us see helps us see others like that's really important to help us see others um to see how other people think and um like what their dreams are um and so all of those things are really really urgent um the people who are incarcerated for them it is a comfort, but also it's like they they want to learn how to write. Like they want to learn skills. It's not just about like self-expression. And um, in fact, when I first started teaching at the prison, they got a little bit mad at me because that's what I was kind of approaching it as. It's sort of like a self-esteem builder. Like we all share our work, you know? And they were like, well, that's all well and good, but we want to learn how to write. Like we want we want to be able to write to our kids who are not on the outside. Like we want to be able to 
write to our lawyers and make sense. Like we want to be able to try to get like girlfriends from in here by writing love letters. And, you know, so they had really practical reasons as well as emotional reasons. But also the more that I got to know them, I realized that it was about them learning how to find their, learning how, learning how to be able to use their voices. Like so much has been taken from them. This is a maximum security prison. So they mostly have sentences of like 60 years. Um, they're in their, you know, 35 years is a short sentence. Um, and so they have to create lives there and so much has been taken from them, their entire world, their families, their homes, and any dreams that they might have had. And so this is all they have. Like they have their voices, they have their minds. No one can take that from them. And so what they choose to do with that is, um, is very freeing, yeah. you know? And so for them to be reading, you know, we, we have our own library there and they're required to read um, from the library and, and they're actually matched to different people all around the world who are reading about those books with them. Right. And they write letters back and forth about them. Oh, that's and amazing. So it's beautiful. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and so for them to be, you know, learning how to write and then using their voices to tell their own stories and to create stories about prison life or anything, you know, like sci-fi, whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, to be able to publish those stories or share them with their families or, and then to read books that tell them their own history, you know, like we have, you know, students who are reading like Malcolm X for the first time, you know, and like Frederick Douglass and, Toni Morrison, you know, for the first time. And it's just, it's amazing to watch them just like grow. They just grow and they even like stand taller, you know, and they talk louder. And I mean, it's just, it's totally, totally beautiful. Have you had, um, I mean, particularly with regard to, I think it's marvelous that you're, um, that you've developed this program the way you have and that they are, that people are being taught their own history and that. Have you hit up against any obstacles from the administration of the prison to, um, I suppose, the, the more sort of culturally awakening um, reading that they're doing and writing that they're doing? Or, or are, are you finding great support from within the, the administration of the prison? I would say that support is a strong word. Okay. Um, it, it kind of depends. I mean, I think that when when the when the incarcerated people are engaged in worthwhile projects that are helping them not be angry and violent that's a good thing you know so they they like that like the programs are really important any programming is really important at the same time it i think that i think that religious programming is something that they really approve of because it's like, you know, like, accept your lot. Yes. Um, whereas I think that sometimes the educational programming can be a little bit threatening, like, you know, like reading Malcolm X, you know, for example. Um, I mean, and I, I guess that they don't really want them writing a lot of negative things about the prison, but it's, 
it's not pleasant, you know, being in a maximum security prison in South Texas, there's no air conditioning. Like there's just, there's things that they could talk about that would be really devastating for um, the wider public to hear. So, um, so I don't write about the prison um, and I don't talk a lot about it. Um, but the men can write whatever they want and they can publish whatever they want. So, um, and you know, no one can stop them from doing that. But also, I mean, I do appreciate that they, that the, the administration has let me come for so long. I mean, they have been, they have been fairly, they have been pretty supportive mm. overall. Well, I, um, long may it continue. Um, if, if you yourself, were um oh, well, I mean, whether incarcerated or certainly was, uh, no i have initially put it down as what what would be your desert island book but if if you were were on your own somewhere and could only read what was available to you what, what would you choose to read oh geez that's so hard <laughs> i mean i guess one thing i would like would be the most updated um editions of um the, those like giant like norton anthologies that have like you know whole novels in them and tons of poetry and tons of you know work by all kinds of people so that i would have a really nice collection um i feel like i could read tony morrison books so many times and always be learning more so so that i would love a collection of all the tony morrison novels um the question I, I hadn't put down, but which I think, uh, you know, having talked so much about various aspects of, of your, your own education, who would be your desert island philosopher? Uh, probably maybe either Wittgenstein or Kierkegaard. Mm. We finish off every interview um, with a, a, it's our own little nod of the cap to um, James Lipton, who ran Inside the Actors Studio, um, which was broadcast for 20 odd years and who sadly died earlier this year. And he would finish every interview with the same 10 questions that he, he asked every every subject. Um, so if you don't mind, I'm just going to, to, to round things off with that. Um, what, what is your favorite word? Henry? <laughs> my dog <laughs> can it not be a it can't be a um a proper name proper oh, no it can be it can be it's whatever whatever is whatever word okay. is that henry who we did we i think who i saw briefly earlier in the interview <laughs> um, and what's your least favorite word um my least favorite word geez that's pretty tough mm. trump <laughs> What excites you? Um, a really good hike. And what completely turns you off? Jeez, these are hard questions. Um, what completely turns me off? I would say a bad sitcom. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Birds. What sound or noise do you hate? Machinery. Do you have a favourite swear word? 
<laughs> we aren't censoring this, so you are able to say if you do. Oh, um, fuck. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, botanist. And what profession would you absolutely never want to do? Politician. <laughs> Um, whatever your beliefs may have been in life, if, if when your time comes, you open your eyes the far side of it and discover that heaven actually does exist, what would you like to hear said to you on arrival? Um, you get to stay. <laughs> <laughs> Durbol and Unfair, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much. This was so delightful. Our pleasure entirely. You've been listening to Dark Unicorn in Conversation with Deb Owen Unferth. The show was written, presented and edited by Paddy Cooper. Theme music by Curtis Batson. Special thanks to the estate of James Lipton. The show was executive produced on behalf of Dark Unicorn Productions Limited by Eleanor Sturton. presents one of the greatest threats to theatre in living memory. The performing arts need you now more than ever. Please, consider supporting our work by becoming a patron, with packages starting at just £50 per year to be a rainbow unicorn. Just visit darkunicorn.org. Science helps us solve problems, but creativity helps us cope with them. Please don't let the performing arts be another casualty of the pandemic. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.